Well, welcome to, what are we up to, episode five of The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, I'm Hugh Remington, and I'm here with The Professor, Peter Van Onsen. G'day, Hugh. How are you? I'm good. I tell you what, I'm getting interested in this campaign now, finally, because it's all, you know, we're, we're, we're a few weeks in and the government, uh, you know, they're sticking to their messaging. They haven't got a lot to say about themselves. We'll get to that. But, boy, they're attacking Bill Shorten and he looks like he's under pressure. He yeah. does, don't you think? Well, we talked about that in the first week. He had a dreadful week. And, and I, I had this feeling after uh, that first week when he stumbled on superannuation, when he was all over the place on the business of how much it would cost to deliver emissions reductions uh, in the targets that he had for them. Uh, he, he, I suddenly thought, wow, this guy can lose this election. And the seats are starting to, if you like, make sense the Morrison approach. I still think that Bill Shorten's the favourite. I still think that the odds are that he wins, as he probably should in the context of, you know, what's gone on over the last few years and the problems that the government's had. But, geez, you know, some of his seats look like they're problem seats now. And Scott Morrison, he's not doing what a lot of people thought he would do early, where he's running around to seats that are problem seats of his. You know, he's spending time in Darwin in the Northern Territory in two Labor-held seats. He's visiting Labor-held seats in Tasmania. He started the campaign in Western Sydney in the Labor-held seat of Lindsay. It might all just be for show, but it doesn't look like at the moment. If it is just for show, he's going to have to switch up pretty soon and, and start sandbagging. Otherwise, maybe there is a bit of momentum for him. It's interesting because talking to Phoebe Bowden, a reporter on the road mm. with uh, Scott Morrison, she says that she's been quite struck by how relaxed uh, Scott Morrison is. Well, he's almost got nothing to lose because yeah. he is the Prime Minister, so he's ticked that life goal box. He was never expected to win the election anyway, uh, and suddenly it looks like, well, you never know. Maybe he can win. Maybe it's only as a minority government. Maybe he can even find a majority. And, and even if he loses, he probably loses better than he expected, so he'd be relaxed about that. And even if he loses big, well, he gave it a crack. He's not going to be humiliated, it no. would seem. He can blame everyone else. So and he's, he's not going to be humiliated even if he loses big in the end. I mean, it's worth remembering, at a similar point in the electoral cycle, according to the polls during the campaign, Kevin Rudd was roughly positioned where Scott Morrison is now when he went up against Tony Abbott, and he got thumped. He lost 90 seats to 55. Now, he had a bad last couple of weeks. The wheels fell off. So there's still the potential for that, for Scott Morrison. He doesn't have a lot of uh, – and we're going to talk about this. He doesn't have a lot of things to say about what he wants to do. He's just relentlessly attacking the other side. It is reminiscent of what Kevin Rudd did against Tony Abbott, but it was all mythical against Tony Abbott because he ran a small target strategy. The big benefit that Scott Morrison's got is that he's not having to be mythical when attacking – Bill Shorten, because there is a lot there in that big target agenda, whether you agree or disagree with it. So there's a bit more meat on the bones of the, of the scare campaign. It is interesting because we're looking uh, – we're now two weeks in. We've got almost nothing from the government about how they're going to govern for the next three years. Oh, their it, strategy is just that we're not Labor. It's remarkable, <laughs> isn't it? Because we've talked a little bit about the small target uh, technique Kim Beasley most famously associated with it, you know, that the other mob are hated, so we're going to do is just not make hmm. a fool of ourselves and we'll glide in. And that's been a kind of an approach that oppositions have, have tried. But governments usually are those things that are supposed to turn up with agendas. You know, stick with well, us, we're going to change the country. Usually that's because they have to defend a lot that they've done. But maybe that's one of the upsides in between the multitude of downsides to changing prime ministers as often as this government has, and as recently as they have, eight months or so ago, when Scott Morrison came in. He, he doesn't have the baggage of somebody that's been there for a long time. It's very hard to go small target when you've got 
a big target set of things you've done. But he hasn't really done much because when he took over, he was hamstrung by a minority parliamentary position and internal divisions as well. And now he's happy to be a small target because if he stood up and started proclaiming significant things that his side of politics might do, there's no surefire way than that, more so than that, to evoke some disagreements internally because they are divided on policy. You know, almost any policy you pick, there's very different views between the conservative and progressive wings of the Liberal Party, much less when you throw the Nats in. So if you look at, uh, if you discount for the moment, and it's not fair completely discounted, but discount those little a few million here, a few million there type uh, announcements that he's made, fundamentally, Scott Morrison's pitch is that we will keep the economy ticking along. uh, By doing nothing. (laughs) by, By not doing much. And we will give you tax cuts, uh, which Labor has matched or bettered in the short term, and their long-term tax cuts are still more than an election cycle away. And for the high, high income earners. And for the higher time. income earners. And we're not going to do a great deal about uh, climate change policy, but we're going to do enough. Yeah. So what else is there? Well, I think, I think that, is, that is the agenda. I mean, a, another way of putting it similarly to what you did is that they – and it's wrapped into their scare campaign. Their argument is, yep, if you're worried about climate change, please, oh, please don't see us as dinosaurs on this because we're going to throw a few billion in that direction over the next X number of years. It's not significant, but it's not insignificant, they would argue. But more importantly, look over here. Labor's going to do negative gearing reform. Don't worry, we won't. Labor's going to change capital gains tax concessions. Don't worry, we won't. They're going to change franking credits. Don't worry, we won't. But then it's like, well, what will you do? There was a a white paper that never saw the light of day on tax reform. There was a white paper that never saw the light of day on Mm. federation reform. Yes, they hand out buckets of money for infrastructure, but that's really just the business of any government. You know, that's bureaucratic decision-making with a little bit of political overlap over the top. They're not really planning to do much. They just plan to kind of be there and and argue it's a it's a traditional conservative thing to do just argue that you should vote for us because you don't want to put labor in charge of the treasury benches it's and a very we'll old be, fashioned and we'll be pragmatic position. we won't uh, you know, we're not bound by ideology we're just going to be safe hands Which on the they tiller, brutally all that are, stuff. by the way but yes don't talk about what we're going to do because then we might become bound by ideology so we will just govern i mean it's actually i think in recent years in the active modern media age of politics, I think it's it's an underappreciated way to govern, which is to actually do little. Let's not call it do nothing. It becomes a polemic critique there by mistake. Just do little. Just don't constantly try to change things and just let people take a deep breath. John Howard mastered that. He did a lot of things in between that, and then he did too much with work choices and got himself booted out of office. But doing little other than just trying to manage, is an underappreciated conservative principle in particular because we've had so many radical conservatives lately that want to have a war on this culture front or a a fight over here about free speech or whatever it might be. Well, this is the old-fashioned form of Menzian conservatism. Just sit there uh, and preside but try to do it responsibly and professionally. Do you think underneath all the noise there is a a kind of a... A yearning <laughs> for a do-little government. Yeah, look, there might be because there's been so much activity, for better or worse, and unwinding of each side of politics as agendas. But I, we should say this about Team Morrison. Where's the team? This yeah. is one of the interesting issues here. If the argument is that we just govern responsibly, okay, 
tick. Matthias Cormann in finance, he's been there in the permanent slot the whole nearly six years. The only member of the expenditure review committee to have that permanency. The others have all come and gone, including prime ministers and treasurers writ large. But then you've got a vacant women's portfolio and a vacant industrial relations ministry with the departure of Kelly O'Dwyer. You've got a vacant human services ministry because Michael Keenan is leaving. There are a host of vacant ministries. Indigenous affairs is vacant because Nigel Scullion is moving on at the end of this term as well. So there's been a bunch of ministerial resignations that haven't been filled. There is no defence minister, even though there is, well, I mean, there is a temporary one in Christopher Pine, but there is there is no replacement defence minister, even though we've been told Linda Reynolds will take that slot. Well, then what happens to her defence personnel portfolio, which she's currently holding? Who takes that? So then that one becomes vacant. We don't really know much about T. Morrison, and we're not seeing very much of them. Josh Frydenberg pops up occasionally, but really, there's not that many faces other than the PM himself. He's trying to be all things, isn't he? The attack dog and, and the nice guy and everything. But, but this, this reflects reality, doesn't it? Because he is uh, more popular than his party mm. uh, at the moment, which is also something that could be said of uh, Malcolm Turnbull when he was I- in charge. Um, I'm not sure it could be said about uh, Tony Abbott when he was in charge. I think it was... It was in I'm not sure Tony Abbott was ever more popular than his party, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I don't think I think you're right on that. I don't think that. Could so, be so here we look at the advertising, and we see that there are plenty of liberals who've got their advertising posters up now. They're going flat out with it. That don't mention the Liberal Party. Or when they do, they often call themselves a modern, modern liberal. liberal. Yes, we discussed that. <laughs> <laughs> Not like the dinosaur liberals. Um, I guess dinosaur liberal doesn't look so good on a poster. Maybe there's too many letters there or something. But, uh, yeah, so you've got the modern liberals and you've got those who don't mention that they're members of the Liberal Party at all. So they'll mm. have their own picture and the colours will be a sort of a vague, amorphous blue. It's not a very dark blue. And they'll say what they've done in the local electorate, whatever it is. So on the liberal side of it, they're not keen to say that they're liberals. And on the Labour side of it, they're not keen to be a associated with Bill Shorten. No, not too many pictures of Bill Shorten in a lot of electorates. And this is where I get the sense that there is a bit of a panic about Bill Shorten because the Labor view has always been, yeah, sure, he's unpopular, but the government's dysfunctional and Tony Abbott was unpopular and he's not as bad as him and he won in a landslide. But there are differences. The the dysfunction appears to have at least receded into the background for the government because they're in campaign mode, so they're being disciplined. They've got a new campaign director in Andrew Hurst now, uh, he's much more modern and up-to-date with campaigning as the new federal director than Tony Nutt, for example, was, who was there previously and was good during the Howard era, but not so good by all accounts in 2016. And then you've got Scott Morrison himself. I mean, this is an important factor here. I, I, I'm not a big fan of this style of campaigning, I have to say, but I just accept that it is what it is. But he, he gets into it. You know, he jumps in the truck and he headbutts the soccer ball you know the comparison of him being Mr Everyday and able to engage and and you know just sort of be the sort of semi-larrikin Aussie on the way through that's participating it creates the f- the feet the pitches and the footage and it gets him what he needs it's much different to that sort of patrician Malcolm Turnbull stroll through with his nose up in the air yes, he, uh, yes, he, you can take pictures of me on my kayak in the harbour <laughs> that's about as good as it got other than that I'm in my suit and I'm trying to stay as far away from as many voters or Mal- as I can or, 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 or Tony Abbott, for whom everything seemed to be a competition, so that he'd he'd get out there and he'd be running. Remember, there's, there seems to be he was playing touch footy or something with some school kids, and he's running around the place almost as if he wanted to beat all the kids at the game. It and was, didn't he uh, then do some? This I think this was in 2010 when he lost rather than won. Didn't he do some 24 hours oh, yes, straight campaign gimmick yeah. at the end? It's yeah. just, 
That is one strength for Scott Morrison is that uh, he plays strongly on being a dag. Mm. So when he doesn't perform particularly well with a tennis racket, uh, you know, or he doesn't look like a, you know, like like he's sportingly competent or something. No one cares. Ever, it's very relatable. Although I have to say, the images that I've seen of him doing it, he's not too bad. He's not dreadful. He's, he's a lot better than I thought he'd be. I mean, it certainly wasn't sort of a the, the sticky wicket John Howard image that some of us will remember from India. I think he was yeah. when he just couldn't get the ball bowled. But I saw him kick a soccer ball into a net, and he did a decent. Headbutt. Um, of he the, even did the uh, the lawn bowls yeah, fairly well. He he, he read okay the there. bias well. I don't know that that's one that you want to be associated <laughs> with being good at sport with, but anyway. No, maybe not. But you know, you've got all those pensioners. You're uh, <laughs> having a go at their franking credits. Well, he's trying to get he's trying to get those pensioners back. They're important to, to Scott Morrison. I mean, that's where the targeting of the franking credits and and the product differentiation that he's got now on Super with Labor. Even though there's not that much between their policies, there is more tax in Labor's changes, and the government has been trying to crawl back from having upset core constituents in that sphere by having put that 15% tax on super, which I think isn't enough, but, of course, people that are drawing on their super things think is way too much. The presidential nature of a campaign is working for Scott Morrison, it seems to me, more than it's working for Bill Shorten. And that, it seems to me, is because Bill Shorten is not popular. And he's not – well, certainly this time, he seems not an easy performer. He's, he's not – he doesn't seem to be really enjoying it. No, he, look, he doesn't. He, he, he feels in this campaign so far – and it might change, there's a way to go – he feels the way Malcolm Turnbull felt in the 2016 campaign versus Bill Shorten. He, there's a sense that he doesn't want to be there. There's a sense that he's irritated by the questions – that are coming from the journalists. A lot of this was kicked off, we have to say, by our colleague Jonathan Lee because, you know, that questioning of Shorten was a game changer so far in this campaign because not only did I think it lift the questioning from the others uh, who were assembled and following Shorten, but it also put the opposition leader on the back foot. And this is no criticism of one side of the journalistic divide versus the other, but you get the sense because of that that there are more powerful there is a more powerful set of questioning at the moment from the, the the journalists assembled who are following Shorten than is the case for the Prime Minister. Now, part of that, I think, is that the Prime Minister bats it away better than Bill Shorten. But part of it as well, I think, is that pack mentality that, you know, there's a weakness here that was exposed with Bill Shorten and they're going after him. And then it's been reported out of that because, you know, those of us that are sitting there putting together the packages, you see it and you feel it. And if you, if you refuse to answer a question, and this is, where he was, this is where he made the mistake, Bill Shorten, I think that first time under questioning from Bill Shorten when he simply refused to answer the question, he was being too smart about mm. it. He was treating it like a question at question time where you can mm. get away with not asking, answering the question at all. But uh, it then, as you say, it puts the rest of the journos on the balls of their feet to have a crack at it. But the other key thing is, is that there are more questions to be asked exactly. of Bill Shorten. And he, I think from watching these press conferences in full, which, you know, is sort of both something I enjoy and also the bane of my life, as you trawl through the whole thing trying to work out what the highlights are, the other thing is he's now trying to overcompensate for not having answered that question and get, getting stung for not answering the question. So now he's giving more fulsome responses and he's getting himself in trouble. 
sometimes with those more fulsome responses is exposing not knowing something or missing something or misrepresenting something and then the follow-up is hard because the precedent has been set to not give him an easy ride. Uh, I tell you what, I think he wanted the Easter break to get a bit of a break. I think he's probably looking forward to any other opportunity for a break on the campaign trail as well at the moment. Is it because I still he, think he's going to win, Hugh? Yes, yeah. Look, I mean, you'd, you'd have to say that would that on the odds. That's, hmm. that's that's where it would be. If he keeps ballsing it up, he may <laughs> not. But he has a much more complex set of policies he's trying to sell hmm. that drive down into so many different areas of people's actual lives. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because he's had those policies in play in some respects for years, but people focus now. And he's got to get it right. Is he lazy? I don't think so. I mean, I think he's been a pretty hard-working opposition leader for a long time. He's risked a bit of arrogance lately, I think. I mean, is he policy lazy? I'm not suggesting he doesn't get up early in the morning, <laughs> but is he policy lazy? Well, you know, that, that sloppy Joe against Joe Hockey stung again and again over uh, a long period of time. I, I don't think so, but something that is worth remembering is he hasn't been treasurer. And leaders who haven't been treasurer sometimes get more caught up on the policy detail, particularly around the economic policies, and that's where the government's trying to hit him hardest, and that's where they've got their biggest reforms in the economic policy sphere. And he wasn't the architect of it. Chris Bowen was very much the architect of it as the shadow treasurer who has, albeit briefly, been treasurer before. But Bill Shorten, I don't think he's lazy, but he doesn't have the benefit of having been a treasurer. And I don't think Scott Morrison was a particularly great treasurer, but he was treasurer before becoming leader and obviously... So you internalise those numbers. It helps, I think. I think it helps you get through the tougher questioning, particularly when you're under more pressure during an election campaign. You're travelling through another dimension. dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. That's the sign. Your next up stop. Ahead. Your next stop. The Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone. All new. The Twilight Zone, hosted by Jordan Peele, now streaming exclusively on Ten All Access. Welcome back to the Professor and the Hack. Uh, Hugh Remington here with uh, Peter Van Onselen, the Professor. Let's talk about some wacky characters. Um, no one in the major parties right now has a mean word to say about Clive Palmer. Isn't that odd? <laughs> it's because he's just such a nice guy. Here it is. They've, they've he's always a, he's loved him. He's a good him. citizen. He's, he's, he's a fine, upright member of the public, whatever yep. he is. Always ensures that his workers are well remunerated. <laughs> uh, look, he- And his preferences <laughs> are gold right now or they're nickel. I tell you what, the way that he's entered this campaign is, is fascinating. I mean, one poll across four seats, suddenly everyone sits up and says, oh, that $30 million ad campaign has had an effect. It's not much of one, by the way, in terms of bang for your buck, but, boy, it could be significant on election day if he directs preferences hard in one direction or the other. The assumption is that they're going to head the way of the conservative side of politics, the liberals and nationals. In some tight contests, that's a problem that Labor doesn't need nor want. And here's the other important thing. If he's directing preferences, assuming that there's some follow-through on the how-to-vote cards from his supporters, the way of the conservative side of politics, one of the things, one of the themes we've talked a lot about here is that Labor has a lot more money than the government, than the coalition has. Well, if they've got a sort of almost proxy 
in Clive Palmer that's flicking an extra few percent of the vote in their direction via preferences. doesn't matter what way you get there. You've got to land at 50% plus one. doesn't matter if you get there on the first preference or if you need preference flows. That's almost like a bucket of money that's indirectly working for them maybe makes up some of the cash shortfall because that has been a big problem for this government. So uh, as we rather speculated when we looked right at the start of this, I think it was in our first episode, we, we looked at the fact that the uh, his party had not uh, at that stage nominated a Senate list for Queensland. What do you know? He's decided he's going to have a crack. And, and he's he got a chance the, there. He's got a very good chance. And then you look at it. He's going to get preferences coming back his way, presumably, if people follow these cards. And, of course, as well, people rightly I'll- point out, you can't direct people to put preferences anywhere. Uh, voters get to put their preferences where they want to go. But nevertheless, it's on the how-to-vote cards. It'll be interesting to see how that works in the Senate because they've changed the Senate system. You can now vote across the top of the line rather than just put a one uh, and then have a party directive of the how-to-vote card. So there's a few adjustments there that will be interesting to see that what effect they have. But let's not kid ourselves. That's the main game here for Clive Palmer. So the main game for the major parties is try to do a preference deal with Clive Palmer so that we get his preferences and we can win government by winning tight contests in the lower house. What's in it for him to do that is exactly what the Greens do with Labor. Uh, you say, yeah, sure, you can have our preferences in the lower house. That matters to you. We get your preferences in the Senate. And that's the quid pro quo. That's the deal, if you like. And so you, you, we speak about the amount of money. It's already up over $30 million. It'll doubtless climb higher uh, that he's spent on advertising so far. Ponder this, though. He gets into the Senate. His interest has always been in making money for himself. His circumstances have improved. Uh, he's won a very important court case, which uh, which gave him control back of royalties in, in a mine. Uh, he's on some measures up over $4.5 billion. He is on some lists richer than James Packer. Mm. If he gets a seat in the Senate, depending on the way in which the Senate's formed up after all of this, he will get to make decisions about things like taxes on mining companies. And His what, $50 million might seem like a pretty good investment. And there's not much by way of oversight for conflicts of interest in that context. I mean, other than disclosure provisions, there's not a lot at all because um, at the end of the day, you're allowed to have those if you disclose them. And it's parties more than the parliament uh, that tends to come down harsh on that because of media scrutiny. He's a very different beast, isn't he? He takes a different view to these things. You know, he'll just stare down the media um, attacks on him and, and just get on with business. Yeah, he's not going to get disendorsed by his party uh, apparatus, that's for sure. So you think he's a pretty good chance of getting in? Well, I think so because of those preference negotiations. Now that his preferences are important in the lower house, he'll get a flow to him in the Senate. And that's the point product differentiation, if you like, between him and One Nation now. One of the reasons that Pauline Hanson is so enraged by Clive Palmer's presence going for the Senate is she's not up herself. If she was, she would win, I would think. But her candidate is going to struggle to beat him with little or no preferences flowing his way. So he's a, I'd, I'd say he's now the favourite to pick up the minor party slot in the Senate up in Queensland. And if you look at Pauline Hanson, she becomes uh, the one believable voice on Clive Palmer in some ways. She's saying what neither the Coalition nor the Labor Party will say and that this is a guy uh, for whom taxpayers are still footing the bill 
for the failure of his Townsville nickel refinery. Uh, I think it was somewhere up in the order of $70 million that had mm. to get handed out out of the taxpayers for entitlements for workers uh, when 700-odd workers, a little more than 700, lost their jobs and the place got liquidated back in 2016. So you're saying, how can you do deals with this guy? And, in fact, we also learned today that his head office for mineralogy has now been shifted offshore to Singapore, for heaven's sake. It's interesting, though. Look, I... I'm not as harsh on either side of politics trying to do a deal with Clive Palmer as I was on them being prepared to do deals with One Nation. I think attacks on Clive Palmer in that respect are a little bit like Morrison's attempts to attack Labor for doing deals with the Greens. Sure, you can disagree with the Greens on death duties, but so what? Uh, That's not a reason not to engage with them in preference swap arrangements. I mean, most of the OECD has death duties. It's just that for some reason in this country they're seen as some grand horror. We don't not deal with the United States, the UK, France, Germany in a trade sense because they have death duties. Why can't Labor do preference deals with the Greens? I have a similar view with Clive Palmer. Yep, sure. You know, the the, the nature of what he's done uh, in some of his business dealings uh, feels a little untoward, but at the end of the day, preference deals are what get you elected, uh, unless we're talking about something as hard as racism, which is what I see, uh, and, and serious bigotry in the ranks of One Nation, where I think you do need to make a stand, just like against someone like Fraser Anning. Uh, I'm okay with preference arrangements. That's that's politics. So racism trumps mere policy? I think so, because... <sighs> You know, it's very easy to be morally critical of some of the things that Clive Palmer has done, particularly to, to workers. But in a sense, there's a lot of businesses that have done similar at different moments in time and people get on with business executives that were part of that and move on to the next stage of their career or lives, sometimes even into politics. But uh, and some I, of those businesses are, are donors to one side of politics. That's exactly right, and they reconfigure in a new format or whatever it might be. But, yeah, when we're talking about bigotry and, and the effect of that on the culture of a country, that, to me, is is a is a is one where you want to see your parties take a stand. Well, let's talk a little bit about business. What do you think ultimately will be the fallout, if any, of the water buyback scandal, if indeed that is what it is? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think the government's plan to try to inoculate themselves from criticism by bringing the Auditor-General in uh, is a a clever political plan. Now, the Auditor-General has significant powers, but the government overstates the Auditor-General's comparative powers to a Royal Commission. They are not judicial and they are not akin to a Royal Commission. They don't have the same powers to investigate, to subpoena witnesses, to do all that stuff. I mean, they have some of those powers, that is true, but they try to basically suggest that they're one and the same. If that was the case, then we wouldn't need a discussion about all all manner of things because you've got the Auditor-General that sits there as an almost permanent Royal Commission over everyone. And also by by dredging it back to 2008, two things happened. First of all, you you, you bring in the Labor Party period of office. Takes longer to do. But the other thing is there's just such a volume of material that, that you say, you know, here you go, here's... Uh, what is it now, over a decade's worth of stuff, have at it, it's Auditor not, General. We'll see you in September sometime. Yeah, and it muddies the waters. It brings Labor in, even though this is a specific thing in relation to what happened with uh, with Barnaby Joyce, his decision-making, you know, Angus Taylor's past affiliations, whatever that does or doesn't mean, the $80 million cost, uh, they're, they're, yeah, the fact there wasn't a tender. The, the, the bit that stinks is the idea that there's $80 million spent on water where it's not clear what the taxpayers got for their money and that Barnaby Joyce was involved in it and that another important 
uh, front bencher and Angus Taylor, who's seen by some as one of the leading lights for the future uh, of the of the Liberal Party, um, even though he divested of him of of these involvements before he got into politics, nevertheless was involved in an offshore tax haven, mm. and it just it just has that clanging ring well, about uh, big end of town. Well, this is your point, isn't it? It's it's that. It's the optics of it. Yeah, it, you and it, I don't have it, offshore tax havens unless there's something you're not telling not, me, not, not, nor not. do most of the punters. And people kind of feel it worked very poorly against Mr. Harborside Mansion's Malcolm mm. Turnbull, that he had money in the Cayman Islands. And for some people, they didn't couldn't see past that. They went, well, he's a, you know, why would you have money in the Cayman it's, Islands? It's the, it's the optics of it. It's And, you know, there's been a lot of legal letters apparently thrown around with some of the reporting of this. But there's no legal letters to be thrown around about saying this. It's even if everything is 100% above board and appropriate with no wrongdoing of any sort, which quite frankly I probably suspect is the case, it's the optics that matter. You've got a no-tender process with a business that had a directorship previously before he ever entered parliament by somebody who is now not only a senior minister but the energy minister of all roles and... You then have this same business having donated money to the 2013 election campaign, which got the Liberals into government in the first place. Now, I suspect that that just looks bad and is bad optics and literally nothing more. But as long as it looks bad, then people are going to ask questions. And quite frankly, rightly so. And that's why I think the Auditor General's report is probably the government's best play on this one. As you say, muddy the waters a little bit, but then also be able to say, hey, we are looking into this. Optics on a couple of other little matters. One of the things the Labour Party has done, and this is playing very well in uh, those very multicultural seats of inner Sydney in particular, is they're offering a process by which visas for parents of migrants are going to be made cheaper, much more available, and for four grandparents. So if you've, uh, you know, if you've got a child here, you can bring in, and this is playing very much into the Chinese uh, electorate, you can bring in all four grandparents of your children with a cheap visa, and that's being seen to play pretty well. Um, what David Coleman, who's both immigration minister mm. of the Liberal Party, but also holds mm. one of these seats, the seats of banks, uh, says it's disastrous. It's very poor planning because you're going to wind up with large numbers of uh, non-productive new migrants on on visas, on, on, you know, three- to five-year visas, but crowding into these, uh, broadly speaking, inner, hmm. inner to middle-range suburbs. Um, I can see why Labor Party would want to do it for those votes, their marginal seats. What, what's, is there a downside? Well, the downside, I suppose, is the sort of the scare campaign about, you know, congestion and unproductive uh, migrants coming in on visas. So there's the capacity for it to go both ways. You know, it's a, it's a potentially targeted strategic policy to win votes by Labor, but with the downside potential uh, via a, a scare campaign to lose votes um, because the issue of migration is one that can be pretty divisive and there's a lot of discussion. The government seems to have been going down the path of trying to reduce the flow of migration and seeing that as a political winner in the war against congestion. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think it cuts both ways. And also in optics, uh, we've seen uh, the Get Up mob, who who we have 
a lot of expectations are going to be influential in this election. So they they stuffed up their, their leader, Paul Oosting, made some mistakes when he was talking about Josh Frydenberg in the first week of the campaign. Now they've got this ad that they've had to pull uh, because it has a Tony Abbott-type figure uh, in his budgie smugglers as a lifesaver uh, appearing not to care about someone drowning uh, in the waves off mm. Off, and, and the point seems to be something to do with climate change. It's been pulled. They've pulled the ad now, agreeing that it was insensitive. The life-saving uh, mob have, uh, are most upset about it. Uh, the, and, and if this was by anyone else, the get-up would be exactly the kind of activist group that would go for broke against a, you know, a cloth-eared, tone-deaf type of uh, advertisement like this. Is get-up more clumsy well, it's we suppose it's surprising, isn't it? I mean, yeah, they, they've sort of been billed as this slick uh, campaign outfit, totally media savvy. Yep, but yep. in but they've got a CEO who doesn't know that you know Josh Frydenberg's not the deputy prime minister, and all manner of other errors on the way through, um, factual mistakes when attacking the treasurer, and now a uh, pretty silly ad. I mean, look, I don't want to get all you know indignant and offended by it. I think that people can overdo that. I just think it was stupid. Uh, and, and I'm more curious how it got approved, you know. I mean, Cause, cause at what layer thing. of oversight does somebody not turn around and look at this and say, what are we doing? You know, Absolutely. This isn't going to work. I mean, that's the thing which strikes me is that these guys are supposed to be the media savvy folk. Yeah. And yet this is a really a rookie error um, because the optics, the, the suggestion that a Tony Abbott figure doesn't care if someone drowns when the guy, as everyone knows, thanks to his reg bug, uh, budgie smugglers, is a surf lifesaver, or that any surf lifesaver lets people drown to make a political point is – I'm not indignant about it, uh, but I am, mm. I am astonished that Get Up, of whom so much is expected in terms of their campaigning nows, just keeps stumbling. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just – for me, it's it's how something like that sees the light of day. I can see some sort of creative decision that conjures that up, but then why doesn't it get killed off at the first, second or third layer of testing, much less actually doing the whole thing and moving it from a script to an actual end product that then gets watched and then still doesn't get canned and then goes to air. You know, to me, it's bizarre. There were plenty of points along the journey. They could have pulled that one. <laughs> All right. So, look, we are where we are. We're sort of roughly two weeks in. Um, what does Bill Shorten have to do, just in summary, what does Bill Shorten have to do to, to win this? What does he have to avoid? Uh, what does Scott Morrison have to do if he's going to pull this one out of the fire? Well, I think Scott Morrison has to just keep doing more of the same. It's all he's got. You know, he can't turn around and, and have too many rabbits to pull out of hats here. I think more of the same and just relentlessly trying to grind down uh, Bill Short. And the only thing I'd probably add is he needs to turn – I wrote about this on the weekend – he needs to turn his macro numbers, you know, large-scale taxes that are going to be added and so forth, into micro-targeted messaging. And what I mean by that is make it more relatable to the individual. You know, a lot of Australians, I think, hear – $367 billion of new taxes and that your eyes blur over, you know, the, the figure's so big and what does it relate to specifically? I think he wants to emulate the Keating campaign in whatever way works today, 
from the GST election campaign against Houston where they had cha-ching, you know, 15% up on your groceries, cha-ching on your toothpaste, whatever it might be. So find a way to make it more relatable. That would be the only thing I think he would change other than being as relentless as he has been. Bill Shorten's an interesting one. I mean, he's just got to defend his policies and probably just get a little bit better at it. Uh, at the moment, he's been stumbling because he almost looks like he's not match fit when he should be match fit because he's been opposition leader for so long. So he can't run away from his policies. He certainly can't backflip this late on some of them. That, that would see him eaten alive. He's just got to hold his ground and and try and argue his case and remind voters that this government isn't really doing anything. They're just trying to mount a scare campaign. And guess what? You know, what we're doing actually isn't as bad as they're making out. He's got to try to win that. And as uh, Graham Richardson advised him, don't make any more announcements, too. Not for the last few days. I, I, don't, I don't think he needs any new taxes. I'd certainly say that. But watch this space. You know, they've got a lot of money screwed away. The flip side to the government saying Bill Shorten has $367 billion of new taxes is we're waiting for the hundreds of billions of dollars of handouts that he can do that go with that, which, by the way, can include tax relief. So it's not the quantum that the government says that that brings it down, but it's tax relief via tax reform. We've only seen the 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 gathering of the tax so far largely from Labor. Uh, they'll, they'll look to drop the upside of this towards the end of the campaign and really get those swinging voters into line. The goodies are still to come. Peter Van Onselen, the professor, great to talk to you as always. Good to chat to you. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.